Welcome to church. My name is Pete. I'm the lead pastor of Southwest Evangelical Church. So great of you to be here this morning. Uh, Look, I want to show you a picture and I want to ask you if you know what's in common with these three tennis players, apart from the fact that they're all tennis players. Uh, Yes, obviously they're they're great. They were all the best uh, at their time. Uh, But I'll tell you something else in common with them, but also with a lot of tennis players, and it's this. They all have these superstitions and habits. And let me tell you about Serena Williams, the first one. Um, If she's on a winning run, Serena will not change her socks for the whole tournament. She'll just keep wearing the same old pair of dirty socks because it brings her luck. Uh, What about Roger Federer, the guy in the middle? Roger is obsessed with the number eight. Did you know that? Number eight. So he'll serve eight aces in practice before a match. He'll have eight towel rubs at the end of a set. He'll have eight, exactly eight bottles of water courtside. He'll carry exactly eight rackets. And then, of course, there's Rafael Nadal. And if you know anything about Rafa, he is Mr. OCD, right? In fact, he is really, he, he admits to having OCD, obsessive compulsive um, disorder. He So you might know, before every serve, he takes his time, and he has a routine. Have you seen him do this? Did did you guys know? Okay, so firstly, he'll pick his wedgie, like really he will. Then he'll touch his left shoulder, his right shoulder, he'll pull his nose, he'll tuck his hair, and then then he'll serve, finally. Um, And then also his water bottles have to be positioned in a certain order, and he'll only drink from them in a certain order. Um, He'll refuse to cross on a changeover of, of sides of the court. He'll refuse to cross the net before his opponent does, and... All these crazy habits and superstitions, and it's not just tennis players, of course. Uh, Many athletes all have habits and superstitions or or items or charms, and it's all supposed to bring them luck. Now, I mention this because in that chapter we just read, 1 Samuel 4, the people of God, Israel, are facing enemies, and they're trying to do the same. Did you notice? They're trying to do the same. They're bringing out their lucky charm. Only it's not just a lucky charm, is it? Because we're talking about the ark, The Ark of the Covenant. This is the portable representation of the presence of God. Um, It was with this Ark that the walls of Jericho came tumbling down and the enemies were conquered. So surely they thought, surely God is the Lord is with us if we have his Ark. But of course, Israel had to learn a hard lesson about this kind of thinking. And I reckon so do we. Um, now, in 1 Samuel 4, you'll notice that the character of Samuel is going to take a back seat, uh, and it's only until chapter 7 that he reappears again. And, and so between 4 and 7, it's all about the ark. Um, and for this chapter and the next two chapters, God is going to teach his people then and us, his people today, a lesson about himself. He's going to teach us who Yahweh, that's the name of God, who Yahweh the Lord really is and why you can't treat him like a lucky charm, and what is actually the right way of responding to him. You see, today he's going to ask us the question, how big is our view of God? How big is our view of God? Is he sometimes, in our view, so small, so familiar, so comfortable, that we don't think much of him? And how does a big view of God affect the way that we relate to him? How might it change our view of holiness and sin? These are the challenges for us today. But before we get into it, why don't we pray? Let's pray. Father God, please reveal to us through your word today, by your spirit, something more about who you are and how we might relate to you properly. In Jesus' name, amen. Three points. 
Let's go. Firstly, verses 1 to 11. Um, as I said, we're uh, taking a break from, uh, if you like, the Samuel story, the Samuel narrative, and we're going to a few chapters of the Ark narrative. But they're actually very, very linked, of course, because last week, you remember, Brett preached, um, and God's word came to the young boy Samuel. But what it did was it confirmed God's judgment on the house of Eli. And this becomes a bit of a preview. Remember from 1 Samuel chapter 3, I'll read it out. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain him. And so in chapter 4 now, we're about to witness this word get fulfilled. Something that's going to make our years tingle. So we read it before, chapter 4, verse 1. Israel go out to fight the Philistines but they are soundly defeated. And they knew enough to know that the defeat came from the Lord, came from Yahweh. And so naturally they thought, hmm, maybe it's because we didn't have Yahweh with us in battle. Well, let's fix that because we have his ark. So let's bring that ark with us. And surely that means he'll go with us. And the next time we battle, we'll win. Now, just a quick aside, what is the Ark of the Covenant? Here is a representation of it. It's basically a wooden box, and it had three key features. Uh, What it contained, uh, what was above it, and what covered it. They're the three key features. And you see that passage in Hebrew sort of describe it, so I'll use that. Um, This Ark contained the gold jar of manna. Manna was the, uh, the, the, the miraculous bread that God fed his people with in the desert. Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Okay, that's what, what's in it. What was above it, above the ark, were the cherubim, that's those angels with the wings touching of the glory, and it overshadowed the atonement cover. That was the third thing what covered it. Um, it was a visible symbol of the presence of Yahweh, of God. Um, if you like, it was a kind of portable throne, all right? It represented a throne. Um, back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, it was called the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned above or between the cherubim. So you can imagine it's sort of representing a throne. So the invisible glory of God is seated above or between the, the angels, and that's why they're touching, kind of forming a throne, a seat. Um, the box itself is sort of then like his footstool, right, where he puts his feet uh, it, it, representing that the place where his presence touched the earth. And because the box is a footstool and the place that represented, you know, God touching the earth, then the, the cover of that box is where the blood of, of animal sacrifices were sprinkled to especially cleanse. Because why? Because sins needed to be dealt with at the point where God touched the earth and met with his people, right? So that was the atonement cover. Now, it was this ark that the leaders of Israel thought could save them in battle. So would it work? Well, of course, we read the ending already, so we know it didn't work. But even if you didn't know the ending, you at this point, if this was the first time you'd ever read it, you would at least pick up on a couple of warning signs, the things that aren't right. Um, The first warning sign is this. You notice what Israel didn't do. You notice what they didn't do when they were defeated by the Philistines. Um, This is a representation of what happened in the book of Judges, which is the era this was set in. You remember we did Judges uh, last year and earlier this 
earlier this year. Anyway, we just finished Judges. Um, and uh, what would happen when uh, uh, Israel would face defeat from the enemies because it was a sign of judgment was they would actually repent. They would cry out to God. That's where the yellow circle is. And then God would save them. But you notice this time they were defeated by the Philistines and they didn't do that at all. They didn't repent. They didn't seek God. They didn't cry out to God. They didn't look at themselves and think, maybe there was something wrong with us. Maybe this is just, no, no, no. Instead, they thought, well, God's presence and help was something that we could call upon like a lucky charm, like a superstitious lucky charm. As long as we did that, we'd be fine. But you see, the God of the Bible is not a God that can be contained, not a God that can be domesticated, not a God that can be manipulated. He's just not that kind of deity. Do you remember the second commandment, right? First commandment, you shall have no other gods. The second commandment, you shall not make an image of God, of the true God even. Why is the second commandment there? You're not allowed to make an image, an idol, a representation of God, of Yahweh. Well, it's because the moment you make a visual image you automatically are domesticating God. You're reducing God. You're trying to contain God, right? And that's why the second commandment matters. See, the symbolism of the ark, though, remember the ark? This ark is just his footstool. It's just where he puts his feet. Even this ark itself is an act of condescension. You know what condescension means? It means to come down from a great height. You don't actually carry Yahweh's presence around with you as if this is some sort of superstitious presence of God. No, no, no. That's not how the ark works. In fact, the significance of the ark is what's inside of it and the cover that's on top of it. So remember what's inside of it? The manna, Aaron's staff, and the tablets containing the Ten Commandments. The cover, remember, is called the atonement cover. This is where blood is shed and sins are atoned for or dealt with. What does all of that remind you of what the ark is? It's showing you how you relate to God is very specific, right? And it's not just about a box that you carry around. It reminds us that God is a holy God and that sin makes us unholy, And it's the shedding of blood that cleanses sin. That's the whole atonement cover thing. And how does God relate to his people? Remember what's in the ark. He relates to his people on the basis of grace and covenant, promises, contract, commitment. That's why it's called the ark of the covenant. So in the ark is the manna. That reminds his people that he graciously provided for them in the desert. It's got Aaron's staff. That's a reminder that they needed priests to relate to God because that was the significance of Aaron's staff. You can read about it in the book of Numbers. And then the Ten Commandments, a reminder that they had their covenant obligations too, that they had to trust and obey God as his people. In other words, you've got to take the full symbolism of the ark and it shows you it's not just a lucky charm. You don't actually carry God around with you in a box. It's only on the basis of his grace and his love does he condescend, come down, lower himself to be with his people. And only then it's just a footstool. See, back in verse 4, we're reminded that he is the Lord Almighty who is seated between the cherubim. Lord Almighty, the Yahweh of armies, of heavenly armies. That's literally what it means. It's how Hannah actually addressed God back in chapter 1. That's who he is, okay? 
So that's the first warning sign. Even if you didn't know the ending, something was wrong. They didn't cry out to God. They didn't humble themselves. Instead, they used the ark like a superstitious lucky charm. And of course, the second warning sign that should have, you know, given us pause to think this is not going to go well is verse 4, of course. Hophni and Phinehas were mentioned. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, they're the ones with the ark or carrying the ark. And of course, that reminds us of the specific prophecy, the judgment back in chapter 2, where God had said to Eli, your sons will die on the same day. All right, it's not going to go well. So what does Israel do? They bring the ark to battle. It gives them confidence. They, there's a huge shout, a huge battle cry. They're like, we're all pumped up. And it freaks the Philistines out. And verse 8, the Philistines, ironically, they know the history of the Exodus, what happened back in Egypt, almost better than Israel, but actually has the opposite effect, right? It makes the Philistines fight harder, just like a cornered animal or something like that, right? They fight harder, and the result, um, verse 10, so the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That is a disaster. Almost 10 times more casualties than the first battle. And of course, terrifyingly, um, this ark is captured. But even more terrifying is, of course, this was God's plan. Because look, judgment on Eli's house had begun, just as he said. All right, so that's the first point. Let's go to the second point. Uh, the glory of the ark, now the glory of Eli. I'll explain what that means in, in a moment. Um, because now we turn our attention to Eli. He's waiting for the news. Um, unlike Israel, he wasn't so confident. Uh, we, we read that his heart was sort of unsettled. He was anxious about the ark. Now, why was he anxious when Israel was so confident? Or maybe because, maybe because he knew the back of his mind God wasn't so easily manipulated like that. You can't use God like a lucky charm. Maybe, maybe. But more likely, because Eli knew that the presence of God cuts both ways. It could also spell disaster, especially because God had already pronounced judgment on his sons, that they would die on the same day, and guess what? His sons happened to be with the ark that day. I think he knew something might go wrong. But you notice verse 13, Eli, we see him, and he's sitting, waiting on a chair by the town gate. Uh, if you haven't picked up already, if you've been with us in 1 Samuel, Eli is always sitting or lying down, isn't he? You notice that? The narrator is very clever, shows us how passive as a character he is. He's always sitting or lying down. And of course, he doesn't see the messenger who comes from battle because we're reminded that he was old and he was blind. Again, that's a symbol of Eli's poor leadership. But the messenger comes, tells the town what happens, the news breaks. This is the news that makes our ears tingle. Now here's another loud cry, but this time it's not a battle cry. It's a cry of despair, not victory. Eli hears the cry. He wants to know what happens. And then the news is delivered to him by this messenger in four parts. And I've sort of um, altered it a little bit to, to kind of reflect what he actually said, a little bit more um, drama. Verse 17, the man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Israelites. I'm oh, sorry. Israel fled before the Philistines. And also the army has suffered heavy losses. And also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And also, the ark of God had been captured. That's literally the and also bit. 
All right, four pieces of news. Now, it's interesting, it's the last piece of news that does it for Eli, not his son's dying news, the last piece of news. And in verse 18, when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. Uh, it wasn't the news of the ark's capture, but the mention of the ark itself that causes Eli to fall and die. Almost as if God's judgment came on Eli the moment God's name was mentioned. It was like, mentions the ark, boom. Okay? Now, key to this, um, this bit is, actually, there's a play on words. There's a play on words in the original. Um, it says, Eli was heavy, and it's his heaviness that sort of killed him. Right? His heaviness meant that he fell backwards, and because he was so heavy, it broke his neck. But here's the thing, right? The word heavy in Hebrew is the word kaved has the same root as the word glory, which is kavod. You hear how similar they sound? Heavy, kaved, glory, kavod. Because actually, the word glory means heaviness. That's why we have the, uh, the phrase, the weight of glory. You've heard that before? So Eli was killed by his heaviness, or literally, Eli was killed by glory. On the surface, it's his heaviness or his glory that killed him. But in reality, of course, it's not that. It's the glory of Yahweh. That's what killed him. And of course, another play on words is Eli, it says, led Israel for 40 years. Literally, it's he judged Israel for 40 years. Reminder that Eli was a judge like the judges of the book of Judges. Um, but here, there's also that play on words on the idea of judge. Now the judge, Eli, is judged as God reveals his glory. You see, when all is said and done, God's glory represented by the ark is not something that we can contain, that we can domesticate, that we can manipulate. Because glory means what? Heaviness. It means weightiness. In our solar system, the sun has the most glory. It has more glory than the earth because it has more mass It is weightier than the earth. And that's why the earth and all the planets of our solar system orbit around the sun, not the other way around. See, there's no more deadly error when it comes to relationship with God than to forget about the glory of God, the weightiness of God, the gravity of God, the fact that everything and everyone orbits around God and not the other way around. Now, Israel had to learn that the hard way, that they cannot contain God or domesticate God or manipulate God because He is that glorious, that He's that weighty. But let's admit it, that's a lesson we need to learn too, right? Now, imagine you're going camping and you're packing a car. When you're packing a car, for, especially for something like camping, you know, the most important things are got to go in first. Food and water and your tents, your warm clothes, your cooking gear, uh, your underwear, your toiletries and all that kind of important stuff. And then, of course, then you put the, the pillows and the, the board games and the soft toys and the rackets and the bats and the frisbees and the balls. They go in around it and if you can't fit it, you don't worry too much. And you would never do it the other way around. You would never put the frisbees and the board games and all that kind of stuff in first and try and fit the other stuff around it. And this is why you don't let the kids pack, all right? 
Now, when it comes to our lives, though, how often do we make the mistake of putting everything else in first and then try and fit Jesus around that? Exams, work, career, money, relationships, pleasure, travel. Put those things in first. And especially if a lot of us are from migrant families. You know the migrant mentality? You've got to get into the best school so that you can get into the best university, so that you can get the best job, so that you can have the most money, so that you can buy a house in the best suburb that happens to have the best schools for your kids, so that they can go to the best uni, and then they can get the best jobs with the most money, and on and on it goes. Now, in order to do that, then, I've got to prioritize getting the best marks. I've got to put my career first. I've got to earn as much money as I can. And Jesus, if you're a Christian, well, Jesus can just fit around that, can't he? Jesus doesn't mind. He's there for you. He gives you peace when you're anxious. He blesses you because you're one of his. He doesn't demand anything from you. We're buds. He's there to make my dreams come true. It's all good with Jesus. Really? Is that how little glory, weight, Jesus has? Somehow he just orbits around us? What did Jesus say? And from Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In fact, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons, in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, don't make Israel's mistake, don't make Eli's mistake. As if Jesus is just the lucky charm in our lives and make our lives a little bit better and enhance orbits around us. That doesn't work like that. He's not containable, domesticable, manipulative, uh, manipulatable. Final point. Where is the glory? Of course, it doesn't end with Eli's death. We read the sort of appendix, the epilogue. Verse 19 Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured, her father-in-law and husband were dead. She went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she didn't respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Um, Ikabod, right? Remember, kabod means glory. Ikabod um, could mean no glory or probably where is the glory? And that's really what she names her son. That's really the lesson of this chapter, right? Where is the glory? Well, God's glory isn't where we think it is. Right? Israel thought, if we just had the ark, we have God's glory with us and bring us victory. No, no. God's glory was there, but it was there to carry out judgment. <laughs> the glory of God kills Eli and his sons. 
And then, of course, at the end of the chapter, the glory departs from Israel. God willingly lets his glory leave or go into exile to be in Philistine territory, which itself is a preview of what will happen to Israel hundreds of years later. They will go into exile. God's glory will depart from the temple. But, of course, it doesn't mean that God has lost his glory and the kids' talk kind of previewed it, and you have to come back next week for chapter 5. When the ark is in Philistine's hand, uh, Philistine hands, something happens as well, because God doesn't lose glory, right? His glory may have departed, but He's still glorious. Um, but the point is this. God's glory is so glorious and so uncontainable that you actually got to know where to look sometimes. you got to know where to look for the glory of God. It's not always where you think it is. Now, I talked about our solar system. And so stars like our sun are usually associated with glory because, you know, they're burning, they're bright, they provide heat and light. And, of course, our sun isn't even a big star, really, comparatively. But do you know what has more glory than suns in the galaxy, in the universe? What has more glory than suns, than stars? It's actually black holes. Black holes, right? You can't actually see black holes. You can detect them. But why do black holes have more glory than stars that shine? Remember, because glory means weightiness, yeah? And black holes have mass millions of times sometimes than stars. So much mass that they actually have so much gravity that they suck everything around them into them, including light, and that's why no light escapes and that's why they're black, (laughs) right? This is a different kind of glory. It's still glorious. It's mass. It's weightiness. But it's not as obvious, is it? You see, even as 1 Samuel 4 ends with the question, where is the glory of God? Where is it now that the ark is captured? Well, if you know the Bible, you know to look in less obvious places, don't you? In fact, this actually is the pattern of how God works all throughout the Bible. Just when you think God is the furthest is the most absent or the weakest and the most defeated. It's often there that you have the glory of God most revealed. How do I know? Well, it's actually the gospel, the good news of Jesus. In fact, one of the gospel writers, the biographers of Jesus, John, the gospel of John, especially in the second half, is actually sometimes called by scholars the book of glory. Because John is all about the glory. Uh, Let let me remind you, John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word, that's talking about the Son of God, Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Um, If you like word plays, that word dwelling is actually tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, you see? This is the ultimate condescension. God became a man. And we've seen his glory. But then, where in John's gospel do we especially see Jesus' glory? It's actually not ultimately in the gospel of John. He has seven signs, seven miracles, but it's not even in that. Even when he raises Lazarus from the dead, it's not that that ultimately you see the most glory in the book of John. Where is it? Well, it's actually when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the last week of his life, in that second passage in John 12, when Jesus actually said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What is the hour? Verse 24, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. 
Where is the glory of God? If you're reading the book of John, where is the glory of God? You're going to see it most evidently when the Son of God is hanging there, bleeding, dying, crucified on a cross. It's not where you expect to look. That's where the glory is. What seems to be the moment of triumph for the forces of evil, what seems to be the greatest humiliation and defeat of God as he hung dying in weakness, John says, there you see God at his most glorious. Because it's in the cross that you actually get to see God as he really is. That he is a God so pure and holy in his justice that sin has to be dealt with. And yet he is a God so loving and gracious that he would take that sin in our place instead of us so that we could be forgiven. That's the glory of God. Where would you see the glory of God? It's not where you expect. You see it in God sacrificing himself for you because he loves you that much. Now, you see, when you get this, when you really get it, you feel the weight of it, don't you? Right? If you're a follower of Jesus, just try to cast your mind back to the first time that really clicked for you. Oh, God loved me and he gave himself for me. Doesn't that, it's the weight of that. It is beautiful and heavy, right? And when you feel the weight of that, you are pulled into orbit by it, aren't you? It becomes your center of gravity. You see, Jesus doesn't want you to make him the most important person in your life and prioritize him because you feel the threat of judgment. That's not the point of the the, the application I made just then about packing the car and all that. It's not about the threat of judgment. He's not trying to strong arm you, put me first. No, he wants you to put him first in your life because you are drawn into orbit by his love. And it's the most willing and most natural thing you want to do when you understand it. The God who did all this for me, doesn't it make you want to live for him? If God would even die for me, well, then I can 100% trust that his commands are always for my good. That when I build my priorities around him, that's going to be best for me. And so I'm going to submit to his lordship and his love willingly and joyfully and not begrudgingly. Let's pray that that's true for all of us. Get ready to sing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we gaze upon your cross, the moment of your greatest glory, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just reach into all of our hearts here today and just remind us, or maybe teach us for the first time, how much you love us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that the weight of that glory, the glory of your love, might so invade us, that it would be the center of gravity that draws us, that our lives would so willingly orbit around Jesus, because we are loved, and we would lay down everything else at the foot of our good and gracious King. Amen. Let's sing.